that's a pastor in another state tell me about a story, an incident that happened to him uh, when he went to his local uh, DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, to have to change his address on his license. He had moved and uh, hadn't changed his license in a while and ended up getting pulled over and uh, the police officer was going to write him a ticket and so he had to go to the DMV, which uh, I know when you say DMV here, uh, let me just say, you're spoiled in North Carolina because the DMV here in North Carolina uh, being privatized, it is nothing compared to what it is in other states. Uh, if, you have been, if you're from another state and you've had to go through dealing with the Department of Motor Vehicles, you can say amen. Amen? Some of you over there, some of you know what I'm talking about. I've lived in four states, and uh, North Carolina would be a nine-plus in how they deal with the Department of Motor Vehicles, and none of the others are above a two. Uh, long lines. Uh, I think they hire the most disgruntled, surliest people to work there. Uh, and you have to go through all the regulations. And even in North Carolina, I've told the story before of my first time ever having to go, and it ended up taking me what should have been 15 minutes, about four hours and uh, four trips back and forth to town. And it was frustrating, but still not compared to what you have to go through in other states. And my friend had gone, and, and just something so simple as filling out a form, when he got there, there was already a two-hour wait, so he took his number, and he began to wait in there, uh, and, and had to go through all the rigmarole of waiting. When they called on him, uh, he went to, to give them what they needed, and he didn't have the proper uh, form that they needed for the change of address. So then he had to go back and find the proper form, refill it out, pick another number, go back, and he was going through all of the rigmarole. And, and so at the end of the day, he had been there a couple hours, many hours, his whole morning, and he was just steaming. And those of you, you can relate to that. He's just about to blow a gasket. And he's going home, and on his way home, he remembered he had to stop by the department store and pick up a baseball bat for his son for, uh, for his new ball team. So he goes into the, the store, sporting goods store at the mall, and he gets the baseball bat. He goes, and he's banging it into his hand. He's just angry. and So he goes, and he hands it to the cashier, and the cashier with a smile on her face says, uh, is this going to be cash or charge? And, and still angry, he says, it's going to be cash. And, and the moment he said it, he, he said he realized his face and his tone was not nice. And, and she was taken aback. He was probably obnoxious or rude. And so he instantly recognized that. He said, I'm so sorry. You don't understand. He said, uh, it's just been a morning uh, that you cannot believe. I've been all morning at the Department of Motor Vehicles and barely got done what needed to be done. So I'm very sorry for my rudeness and for being rash. And without missing a beat, the woman standing there holding the bat said, well, would you like me to gift wrap it or do you plan on taking it with you when you go back there? So... <laughs> Some of you can relate to that because anger has a way of making us do some of the craziest things that we really even don't want to do. Probably most of us in this room have said things or done things out of anger that we wish we could take back or that we wish we hadn't done. Uh, anger is probably one of the most destructive things that take hold of our hearts and take hold of our lives. So it's no surprise that when Jesus is beginning in his Sermon on the Mount to explain what a beatitude-living, Holy Spirit-filled Christ follower might look like, he chooses to deal with anger first. He chooses to look at how we are called to a different level when it comes to anger in our hearts. Now, if you were with us last week, you know as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll continue to walk through the Sermon on the Mount, but in, in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus unloads what is known as the purpose statement, 17, 18, 19, 20, the purpose statement of the whole sermon. He begins to help believers that are Christians, the new Christians, the new Christ followers understand 
that as Christians, we have an obligation to the law. Just being a Christian doesn't mean we get out of obeying the law or following the law. When I say the law, I'm talking about moral codes, the Old Testament laws that hold us to a moral standard. And he goes even more to a point of saying, not only do Christ followers have to obey the law, not only are we called to follow the law, but we now have a higher level of obligation. We now have a higher level of obedience to the law. See, the law is not obsolete just because you became a Christ follower. Grace uh, covers our mistakes and it covers our failures, but grace does not give you an excuse to live however you want. As Christians, even though we've been given a new righteousness, we are still called to live holy lives, separated lives for Christ. And the guide for those holy lives is the law. And the law is, you know, when people say, well, we don't pay attention to the Old Testament. It was written a long time ago. It's no longer uh, relevant. That Jesus last week said, this law, this book, the Old Testament, will not pass away until all is accomplished in my kingdom. That means till he comes back and ushers in his new kingdom. So Jesus says the Old Testament is relevant. And it's relevant to you and I because it gives us a guideline and a standard that we are called to live. And the standard in the Old Testament, Jesus says, was just about our acts. You see, the, the Old Testament righteousness, the righteousness of the Pharisees, was just about what you did. Uh, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And Jesus comes along last week and says, wait a minute. God's not only concerned with your action. He's concerned with your heart and your thoughts and your motives behind the action. You have a new standard. You have a new standard to live up to. You see, God looks at our hearts, whereas the Pharisees only looked at the act, and as long as you did the act, it didn't matter what was in your heart. That's why he got on to them all the time. didn't matter the excuses you made as long as you did the act. But Jesus says, no, it's no longer just about the act. No longer just about the, the letter of the law. It's now about the spitter of the law. It's now about why we do what we do. Now, last week, if you grew up in an um, evangelical church that is more uh, liturgical, uh, you might have celebrated uh, Reformation Sunday. Last Sunday was the celebration of Reformation Sunday. It is the anniversary of Martin Luther going to a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and hammering his 95 thesis on the door, October 31st, uh, 1517. So last week was the 499th anniversary of Luther doing that. Next week will be the 500th anniversary. Because you see what had happened, and the reason Martin Luther went and hammered those 95 theses on the door is because by that time, by 1517, Latin had gone away from society. No one understood Latin. But all of the Bibles at the time were written in Latin. And, and Latin as a language didn't exist for almost 800 years by 1517. So no one could read the Bible except those who were trained in Latin. And the only ones who were trained in Latin were the priests and the religious leaders. And so the people in the churches had to take what the priest or religious leader said and how they interpreted the Bible as being truth. And that led to all kinds of corruption in the church. That led to the selling of, uh, of absolutes. It led to the, the idea that the church and the state were married together and the church gave the state legitimacy. It led to the, the idea that uh, you venerated people instead of venerating God, that you could venerate worshiping uh, people instead of worshiping God. It opened up the idea of the sacraments being a means towards salvation. And as Martin Luther read through that Bible, he began to realize that what they had been taught, what they had been shown, wasn't true. And it caused him to start what was known as the Protestant Reformation, to get back to the Bible, to say, no, we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. We are saved by faith. We are saved by the power of the Word of God. 
And the moment that the Bible began to get published in English, in less than uh, 30 years after Martin Luther did that, English Bibles began to come out, translations in English began to come out, the printing press came along and began to make Bibles uh, available to every person. The Reformation exploded because they began to read and see what was the truth for themselves. And I tell you that because it was almost similar to what was going on in Jesus' day. Because you see, in Jesus' day, by the time that Jesus came along, the language of Hebrew had been diminished in the Jewish faith. During the Babylonian captivity, about 800 years before Jesus came along, when Jerusalem fell and they took all of the captives to Babylon and they tore the walls down and they tore the temple down, while they were in Babylonian captivity, the, the children of God forgot Hebrew. They stopped using it. They were using Assyrian. They were using Aramaic so that by the time Jesus came along, no one in the Jewish faith except the priests and religious leaders knew Hebrew. Matter of fact, the Bible that Jesus and many of the disciples used is what's known as the Septuagint. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's just a Greek. Now, they memorized some verses when they would stand up and teach. They had to memorize from the Talmud. They had to memorize from uh, their Torah classes, but they didn't know how to read it. And so that gave the Sadducees and the Pharisees a great leeway to be able to say, this is what the Bible says, when it may not have said that. And what had happened over time, and we saw last week, that uh, this allowed the Pharisees to take those rules and those obligations that were supposed to be about our relationship to God, and they made it about judicial issues. That by the time that Jesus came along, breaking a spiritual law had no consequences spiritually, it only had consequences legally. They weren't worried about what it did to your relationship to God. They worried about you breaking the law for the sake of the law. And they were so interested in the act of breaking the law that they had added 613 new laws onto the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus comes along, and last week we saw that He begins to, to open up the truth to those that have never heard the truth. And He begins to explain that, see, what has happened is you've bought into the lie that the law somehow saved you, that somehow doing enough things would make you saved, would make you righteous. But that's impossible. You can't do enough to be saved. And so all that you've worried about, talking to His believers there on that mountain, all you've worried about is the act of the law. Am I doing the right things? He said, do you understand that God is more concerned with a changed heart and what comes out of your heart than he is even the act itself. You see, I think some people in the church forget this. Because so many in the church buy into the lie that if I put on a smile, if I, if I come to church enough, if I dress the right way, if I talk the right way, and I read the right things, and I only listen to the right things, if I do all of these things, so somehow that's going to make me spiritual. And those things are not bad in and of themselves, but those things don't make you spiritual. Because you see, if you don't have a changed heart, if your heart hadn't been transformed by a touch from God, by you accepting Him, then it doesn't matter how many good things you do. It'll never be spiritual enough. And so Jesus came along and He exploded this truth on them. And it blew them away. See, now not only is the law still an obligation, now you have a higher standard of the law. And He begins to explain. He gives six illustrations in chapter 5 of how this truth is a reality. And the first illustration he gives deals with anger. And in each of these illustrations, he says, you have heard it said, and so you'll see that in just a moment, but six of them, six times he says, you have heard it said. It doesn't say you've read it because they hadn't read it. He said, you have heard this be said, but I'm going to tell you what the real truth is. And so he's going to talk to us about anger. So if you have anger issues this morning, real quickly, I pray that God would speak to your heart. And if you don't have anger issues... You're lying to yourself. You have anger issues. 
Let's read what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. Here he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Now, he, he's paraphrasing what they've been taught, what's been evolved, what the translation is that the Pharisees have given. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, see, he doesn't say anyone who murders will break God's heart or anyone who murders will disappoint God or their relationship to God will be strained because at this time it doesn't matter. He's talking about judgment, legal judgment. You'll be given judgment. But I tell you, and Jesus establishing a new standard, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in the dangers of the fire of hell. Now, see what Jesus is saying, and I think sometimes people get confused. Jesus is not saying that if you have anger in your heart, it's just as bad as if you murder someone. Okay, that's not what he's saying. The act of having anger is not the same as murdering someone. But what he is saying is that the spiritual consequences on your relationship to God and your relationship to people around you is very similar no matter if you murder someone or you have anger and hatred in your heart. You see, if you murder someone, you'll deal with the consequences in the relationship, breaking God's law. If you hate someone, if you have anger in your heart, you're breaking the same law and breaking God's heart. You see, in those passages there, what he's trying to get us across, what he's trying to help us to understand is that God is concerned with our thoughts, with our motives, with our heart. Even if it never leads to action, even if you never do anything, even if you never act out on that anger, even if it's just something that is rooted in your heart, it's still important to God. You see, to the Pharisees, they could read this and go, listen, I'm okay, I've never murdered anybody. And, and, and we do the same thing in the church, okay? I mean, let's be honest. Most of us think we are very spiritual because we don't break the sins that we see our friends breaking, right? We pat ourselves on the back. That's why we label sins. And the Bible says, while the consequences on this earth of sins may be different, the consequences in your relationship to God are all the same. They all break God's heart. But we like to describe in our own mind what sins are worse than the other sins. And the ones that are worse are always the ones that we don't commit, right? So we can pat ourselves on the back and say, I don't do those things. And so God's coming along saying, listen, it's not about what you do, it's about what you think. Oh, you may not have cheated on your spouse, but you've lusted in your heart. The consequences in God's eyes are just the same. You've broken God's heart. You put a barrier between Him and you and your relationship to Him. You see, we sit around thinking, I'm doing pretty good. We're just like the Pharisees. I hadn't murdered anybody, but Jesus comes along and says, if you have hatred and anger in your heart, the spiritual consequences are the same. Why? Because it's the heart. Remember what He taught us about the Beatitudes? It's the heart where our character is developed. It's your heart where you learn to become more like Jesus. It's your heart where you all of a sudden start becoming a new creation. And what happens when anger and hatred gets in our heart is it corrupts the process. It suspends the process. It keeps you from growing spiritually. Anger is at the heart of destruction and it opens us up to all kinds of sin. Remember, we learned a couple of weeks ago that there are times when anger is not sin. There's a righteous anger. Jesus at the temple when he overturned the tables. But the only anger that is not a sin is anger at the things that God is angry at. Angry at the things that break God's heart. And righteous anger can never be focused on a person. It can never be directed towards another person. Righteous anger is always directed towards systems and towards behaviors and towards actions. 
The anger that Jesus is talking about here that has huge consequences, whose consequences are as great as murder, is anger towards another person. And listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, if you don't get anything out of this message this morning, then you need to understand that the Bible is very clear. There is no question, there is no ambiguity, there is no excuses. It is never okay to allow anger towards another person to take root in your heart. There is nothing that someone can do to you or to your family or to your friends that gives you justification to have anger or hate in your heart towards that person. So what if they kill somebody? Jesus tells you to forgive them and love them. You see, what the danger of anger is, is when we keep anger in our heart, it doesn't stay in our heart. It always comes out. It always leaches out. It always comes out. And sometimes it comes out on the people that we are not even angry with. And if it doesn't come out, it comes out in the new way is passive-aggressive, right? We pretend we're not angry, but we're really angry. And we're, by not saying we're angry, we're showing how angry our heart really is. And even in the church, what happens is, if we're not angry over something that was done to us, we take up the offense of someone else and get angry if someone else did something to someone, and, and we allow that anger that's not even related to us to come in and root in our hearts. Anger is destructive. Listen, John doesn't mince words. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John's not pulling punches. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, he's saying the same thing, that when you allow bitterness and anger and hurt to fester in your heart, it'll always destroy you. Not the person you're angry with, not the person you hate, it'll destroy you. And it'll destroy the relationship you have with God. The consequences are great. That's why Jesus says, I'm holding you to a higher standard. You can't just get by on what you do or what you don't do. You've got to look at the heart because God is looking at your heart and God is looking at your motives and God is looking at the whys. And he goes on in these verses in verse 21 and 22 to explain how anger progresses. He uses these terms, the, the term raka, which we don't even have a translation for. There's not an English translation. It'd be basically saying worthless, not worth my time. But really the idea behind saying raka, which was a common phrase in Jesus' day, was the idea that you hold someone in contempt. Someone is contemptible to you. You see what Jesus is saying is anger goes from being silent in your heart to all of a sudden it begins to be expressed. Now you may, it's not lashing out, just telling other people what they did to you and how angry you are at them. Just going around and, and letting people know that they did something that made you angry or they hurt you and why they did that. It's not worth your time dealing with them because of what you did. And then he says you go from raka to saying you fool. And the idea of you fool, which means that you are useless, is not really the word, but it's the way the word is said. It is an exclamation. You see, this is moving from beyond contempt to outright rage. This is moving to a place where you have allowed hate to consume everything about you. Something they did, something they said, something that happened has started with a silent anger, and you allowed it to fester, and you allowed it to root, and it turned to contempt. And that contempt began to cloud everything that you saw in their life, everything that you say, everything that you do, to finally the point that that contempt comes out. And you don't call him a fool. He's not, not necessarily saying, you, you know, you're going to hell if you call somebody a fool. I remember a Sunday school teacher when I was little reading that and taking it literally. You better not call somebody a fool. You'll go to hell. Talk about scaring a kid, right? 
It's not what he's saying literally. What he's saying is, is that when you allow anger and contempt to root to the point that you begin to spew hatred, that you begin to spew anger, then it becomes a dangerous point in your life. Because it's at that point that bitterness begins to take root in your heart. See, it's at that point that it is so difficult to root out. It's the most severe form of anger and the hardest to deal with. It is an anger that all of a sudden begins to seethe and destroy your heart and eat you from the inside out. Listen, I've seen people in church that have been so eaten up with bitterness and anger for so many years that they've forgotten what they got angry about in the first place. That anger and bitterness just... And you see, listen... When anger begins to take root in your heart, when hatred begins to take root in your heart, it's not content with just splashing around on those closest. It's not just content with being angry at the things you're closest to. It begins to come out in other ways. See, bitterness all of a sudden begins to corrupt you. It corrupts your looks. It corrupts your attitude. It corrupts everything about you. You ever seen somebody eating up with bitterness? You can tell. I mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental. You can tell. Because that hatred and that anger has rooted inside of them for so long. It it has just changed their countenance. And Jesus is saying, listen, that is dangerous. So how do you start? You start at the beginning and don't allow it to take root in the first place. You deal with it. Jesus is warning us that danger and anger can give us a false sense of everything being okay. But anger has grave consequences, even the slightest anger, even just the littlest amount of anger. Because remember, it's not about the degree, it's about the issue of anger. And one of the consequences that Jesus said that is most important, which is surprising, was how anger affects our worship. Listen to what he goes on in verse 22. Therefore, if anger is eating you up, if you've allowed something to, to anger or hatred to take root in your heart, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, that means if you're worshiping, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the front of the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come back and worship. Then come back and worship. See, Jesus is saying, listen, getting rid of anger in your heart is so important to him. That even if you're worshiping, even if you're doing the most spiritual act that you think, you need to stop what you're doing and go and make it right with the person you're angry with. Do you understand the severity that Jesus is saying? You see, to the religious people sitting around them, that was the last thing they would have done because the act of doing religious things were the most important thing that they could do. And Jesus was taking the most important thing that they could do and saying, listen, the anger that's in your heart is so bad that you need to stop doing what you think is spiritual and go deal with it. And it's so severe that Jesus changes tenses here. He goes from the first part of the verse is saying, you all, and if anyone has hatred, to saying directly, if you are worshiping, And God lays it on your heart. You know that idea of remembering what that means? That means God will tell you what's keeping you from worshiping. Because see, God's more concerned about relationship than ritual. He's more concerned about your heart being right than you offering a sacrifice of worship that is corrupted. That's a big deal. And so that's why we need to prepare our hearts to worship. That's why you don't just come in and and expect God to show up. God says your heart needs to come prepared. And one of the ways that we prepare is to say, God, is there any hatred? Is there any anger? Is there any bitterness in my heart that I need to get rid of before I come to your face this morning? 
See, so many people in church wonder why it comes to, I didn't get anything out of church. I didn't worship this morning. The preacher, it was the preacher's fault. It's the music leader's fault. It's the person sitting beside me's fault. None of that is good enough. Because the Bible is pretty clear that anytime the Word of God is opened up, it doesn't return void. Anytime two or three are gathered in His name, He is there also. So if you didn't get anything, the reason you didn't get anything is because your heart wasn't ready to receive. And a lot of times it's because we've allowed anger and hatred and bitterness to take root in our hearts. And Jesus says it's so important that I will remind you, God will put it on your heart when you come into my house, that there is anger there. So what are we supposed to do when we have anger? What did He say? He said, when you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. That means stop what you're doing. Not wait until the end of the service. Not wait until you get home. Not wait until later. He says, stop what you're doing. The moment God puts it on it, why is it important that we act the moment God puts it on our hearts? Because that is a divine moment. Because if God puts somebody on your heart, there is a reason. You ever been just sitting at your house and all of a sudden thought about somebody? That you just random came to mind. Their name came up. You know why? Because God's telling you to pray for them. That's God's reminder. The Holy Spirit is incredibly powerful and incredibly real. And if God puts somebody on your heart that you have something against it or it's done something against you and you're getting ready to worship, it's because He desires to worship with you and He doesn't want that anger to get in the way. He doesn't want that hatred to get in the way because what He has for you that morning or that day or that Bible study time is so vital for your life that He doesn't want you to miss it. So when He tells you, stop, leave what you're doing, and then He says, go first. And the idea of first go... By pacing first go there is the immediacy, the urgency of it. Stop whatever you're doing. Stop whatever you're talking about. Don't sing another verse. Don't don't add something else to it. He says, stop right there and go and make it right. He says, be reconciled with your brother. Now that harks us back to the lesson we learned in Matthew 5, 8, and 9. Because what does reconciliation mean? It means being a peacemaker. How do you get rid of anger? How do you deal with anger? You find a place of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Do you remember when we studied that? If you weren't here, what we found out is the time that we are most like God, the most in His business, doing what He is called to do, is when we are peacemakers, when we are in the reconciliation business. Why? Because that's what He did for us. That's Christ's job, was to reconcile you to take a broken and wounded and rebellious person and reconcile them with God. He did it through the gift of salvation. How do we do it? We do it by making peace. Now, I read a book called Peacemakers. Ken Sand wrote the book, and he he suggested a couple things. And So as I bring this to close, I'm just going to suggest, if you have anger in your heart this morning, let me just say this. You say, I don't know, Pastor, just ask God. He'll tell you. Okay, you have hatred in your heart towards someone. Someone that's done something. Maybe it's something a long time ago. I want you to understand, you may not even recognize how much it's keeping you from experiencing God. You may have settled into a place where you think, I've got all that God has to offer. This is a good place. I'm worshiping and I'm learning and everything is good. But you're doing it with hatred in your heart. Guess what? There is so much more you can be experiencing. Why settle for that when God has all of this? So when God puts someone on your heart, then you are to stop what you're doing right then and go to them to make reconciliation an important part. 
You see, and the thing that, that gets me is he puts the responsibility of reconciliation on us. Even if we didn't do anything. Even if we didn't say, even if it's not our fault, he puts the responsibility on us because we are children of God. Now listen, you're not responsible to how someone responds when you go to reconcile. You're only responsible for the effort that you make. And one of the things that I found interesting in that passage is four times in those two verses he used the term brother. And brother is not just an accident. It's not just a generic term. He's talking about within the body. Because he is saying, listen, one of the most dangerous things that happens within the body, within the family of Christ, is when brothers and sisters have hatred towards one another. You can never be a healthy church. You can never be a church that is doing all that God's called. You can never be a church that is receiving all the blessings of God if there is hatred and anger from one brother to the next. That's why you've always got to deal with it. That's why it's so important to deal with it. Because it will take root and it will destroy the life of a church. See what Jesus is wanting us to understand is he's more concerned with the correct relationship, with you being in a right relationship with that person that you had hatred and anger than going through some kind of correct ritual. So how do we get rid of it? How do we reconcile? Let me just give you a couple of things that that book, Peacemakers, suggests. And these are A words, seven things on how you can reconcile. And if you don't want to take notes, you can go listen to the podcast. I'll go through them quickly. Listen to them. It says the first thing you need to do is you need to address everyone involved. Talking about being reconciled, being a peacemaker. When you have anger in your heart, you need to go and, and that means the person that wronged you or the person that you wronged, and then you need to go to every person that you've talked about that person to. Because see, the problem with us is when we have hatred or anger, we just don't allow it to fester in our own life. We want other people to hate that person too. And it's not being a peacemaker, it's not being a reconciler. If all you do is go to the person that did something bad to you and say, listen, you've got to forgive me, I'm wrong for how I treated you. And not go to the people that you told all the things that they did bad to you. Why? Because those people are over there harboring bitterness for your sake and you've already been made right. So you need to go to everyone. You need to address every person that has been affected by it. You need to avoid words like if, but, and maybe because when you go to make peace, you're not trying to cast blame, you're not trying to make excuses. You're going to speak truth. You need to admit specifically what happened. Attitudes and actions. What caused this hatred? If you did it, if they did it, you need to talk about what they did and what you responded with. Because you see, by your responding to hatred, if somebody did something to you, if somebody hurt you, if somebody said something to you, you are just as wrong to respond in hate as they are to do the act. So don't think you're spiritual. I know some of you right now, you're saying, Pastor, you don't know what they did. I'm not, it's their, they got to come to me. Listen, the moment you allowed what they did or said to create hatred in your heart is the moment that it became your responsibility to make it right. Admit specifically. Acknowledge the hurt. Recognize. Don't diminish the hurt. Don't say, listen, you shouldn't feel that way. or it's not." A, admit that they probably are hurt by something you did or said. Accept the consequences. Make it right. Alter your behavior. That means find out what caused you to get angry in the first place. What is it that they said? What is it that they did that, that allowed anger to root? And stop letting it happen. See, so many times we allow things in our life and, and week in and week out, things and situations and circumstances and even people in our life that bring out the worst in us. Why do you keep doing it? Get away from it. Don't put yourself in that situation. Alter your behavior. And the last thing, ask forgiveness. 
Because at its heart, reconciliation is about seeking forgiveness. It's always about forgiveness. And you need to remember, when you forgive somebody, you commit to four things. You're not going to dwell on it. You're not going to bring it up ever again and use it against them. You're not going to talk about it to others. And you won't allow it to stand in the way or become a barrier in your relationship. Without those things, it's not forgiveness. See, here's the whole thing, and I'm finished. Listen, Jesus wants you to know he cares about your heart. Doesn't just care about the act. Doesn't just care about the ritual. Doesn't just care about the things that we think make us spiritual. He cares about what's inside. What no one else can see, he sees. That anger, that hurt, that disappointment, that bitterness. And he cares because it's keeping your heart from being transformed into his image. It's keeping you from allowing the Beatitudes to become a reality in your life. And it's your responsibility to do something about it. See, the Christian walk is not passive, it's active. It's not you just coming to church and saying, give it all to me. It's about you giving. It's what worship is. Worship isn't you coming and receiving. It's about you giving. It's about you offering something. And God wants you to say, look, I see the hurt and I see the anger and I see the bitterness that has caused a barrier between you and me that is keeping me from worshiping, is keeping me from receiving the blessing. And so God, show me in my mind, show me in my heart who it is I need to make it right with, where it is that I need to make it right. And the moment that happens, you need to have a sense of urgency. That doesn't mean jump up in the middle of service. I, I preached this one time and and. I'm not heaping condemnation on them. Praise the Lord. They were trying to be obedient. But I'm in the middle of like point number three. And like three or four people just get up and start walking out. One guy over here, he's looking around like, I got to find the guy. I'm like, I'm praying in the back of my heart, Lord, this is just going to create more gossip in the church. So stop it. Because that's the way we respond when God moves in our hearts. We always worry about what people think. Doesn't mean jump up now, but it means immediately. The first opportunity you have, a sense of urgency, you go to that person and say, listen, I want to make it right. Admit what you did. Be honest about the feelings. Be honest about the hurt. You're not responsible. They could slam the door on you, but you've done what you've needed to. You've released the anger. You've released the hurt. You've released the bitterness. You've done what God called you to do. And you know what he says? When all that's done, what does he say? After you've stopped, after you've gone and made it right, he says, then come back and do what? worship come back and give thanks to god what do we thank god for after we've been through something you thank god for the opportunity to be a peacemaker because you see before you knew jesus that would be the last thing you would think about before you had a relationship with jesus you probably loved hating people it probably felt good probably made you happy to be mad at people to know that people did you wrong to have anger in your heart probably because that's the way the devil works. But you see, when you became a Christ follower, now conflict is, is not a, a problem. Now conflict is an opportunity. And we're all going to face conflict. You're going to face conflict this week. And it's an opportunity to instead of allowing hate and bitterness and anger to root in me, it's an opportunity for me to be a peacemaker and to pursue God. And that drives us to worship. Thank you, God, that I am different now. That you give me an opportunity to be a peacemaker. Why? Because he was a peacemaker for me. The psalmist writes, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may worship on his holy mountain? That's in his presence, face to face. He who has clean hands. And the idea of clean hands means no anger against his brother, nothing against his brother, and a pure heart, nothing against God. The writer of Hebrews echoes it in Hebrews 12, 14, and 15. It says, Make every effort 
to live in peace with all men and to be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No one will see our witness. See to it that no bitter root unreconciled anger. No bitter root grows up in you to cause trouble and defile those around you. See, you have a responsibility. You have a choice. Stop letting your heart be destroyed by hatred, anger, and bitterness. God offers more, so much more, if you'll receive it. Let's pray.